Episode 3, Can I Talk to You About Jesus? 30-39 AD Hello and welcome back to 202 Decades. This is a big one. First we'll be covering Rome, then we'll get to Jesus. Last time, we saw the rise of Sejanus, as the competing interests pulled Emperor Tiberius from all directions, he had grown weary of ruling. Increasingly, he withdrew from Rome, and not long after his son suddenly passed away in 23 BC, he left Rome for good, retiring to the island of Capri. To be clear, he still ruled and administered, but from a distance. His go-between for this arm's-length governing was Sejanus, the leader of the Praetorian Guard. Sejanus had been growing in power for several years due to his competence and closeness with Tiberius. With Tiberius out of Rome now, Sejanus could throw that power around more and filter or twist the information that reached the princeps. All in his own favor, of course. His allies were rewarded, and his enemies were punished or purged. Chief among his enemies were the supporters of Agrippina. She was the widow of Germanicus, who many believed had been poisoned on the orders of Tiberius. With Tiberius's son gone, Agrippinus' children, who were descended from Augustus, made sense to become heirs to the empire. Well, they made sense if you discounted Sejanus's own ambition to become the next princeps. While Tiberius's mother Livia lived, Sejanus could not move directly on Agrippina or her children. Livia was no fan of Agrippina, always supporting her own son, Tiberius, rather than her scheming granddaughter-in-law. But Agrippina's children were Livia's own great-grandchildren, and she wouldn't allow Sejanus to harm them. The farthest Sejanus got was putting Agrippina under house arrest in 27 AD. When Livia died in 29, though, Sejanus was free to directly act against Agrippina and her sons, Nero and Drusus. Sejanus had to act fast, because Nero was becoming popular in the Senate, more and more resembling his legendary father, Germanicus. So that same year, Nero was accused of wasteful extravagance and immorality, and Agrippina was censured for her insolence and defiance of the princeps' will. They were both exiled, sent to small islands off the coast of Italy. That's where we left them last time, Sejanus triumphant and Agrippina and her son imprisoned. In this decade, things will get worse for the Julio-Claudian dynasty before they get better. Agrippina's second son, Drusus, would also soon be dismissed from his duties, then accused of plotting to betray Tiberius. Drusus was thrown into a prison in Rome itself in 30 AD. Agrippina, Nero, and Drusus all were in prison now. Within the year, Nero had killed himself. At the height of his power now, the Senate treated Sejanus as if he were the princeps. It was voted that his birthday should be a public holiday, and prayers and sacrifices were offered not only for Tiberius, but for Sejanus too. With his enemies purged, his allies strong, and position secure, Sejanus merely needed to await the death of old Tiberius. At some point, though, Tiberius was made aware that his helper was being treated as the de facto emperor. We aren't entirely sure who or what finally tipped Tiberius off, that it was Sejanus who was running the empire and keeping information from him. Josephus records that it was Antonia, the mother of Lavilla, who tipped him off. Upon discovering the situation, the ancient historian 
Cassius Dio, writes of Tiberius, He did nothing openly, to be sure, for Sejanus had completely won over the entire Praetorian Guard, and had gained the favor of the senators, partly by the benefits he conferred, partly by the hopes he inspired, and partly by intimidation. He had furthermore made all associates of Tiberius so completely his friends that they immediately reported to him absolutely everything the emperor either said or did, whereas no one informed Tiberius of what Sejanus did. Tiberius kept his knowledge under wraps, but began to subtly act against Sejanus. In 31 AD, Sejanus in person and Tiberius in absentia became the two consuls for the year. Tiberius kept sending dispatches of all kinds regarding himself both to Sejanus and to the Senate, some saying he was on the verge of death, others saying he was in good health and would soon be returning to Rome. Some would greatly praise Sejanus, others would denounce him. This series of contradictory dispatches confused both Sejanus and the people, but they may have given Tiberius space to make his next moves. That next move was to prop back up a potential rallying point of opposition to Sejanus. Germanicus had other children besides Nero and Drusus, and the oldest remaining boy was named Gaius. Gaius had grown up in the camps of his father, alongside the army, and had gained a nickname from the common soldiers who were amused to see a child of a noble family on campaign. The name they gave him was Little Boots, or in Latin, Caligula. His young age had saved him from the purges of Sejanus the prior few years, and now Tiberius made him a priest, praised him, and hinted that Gaius would be his heir. To be clear, no one called Gaius Caligula as an adult until sometime after his death. The people of Rome automatically loved Gaius, seeing in him echoes of his beloved father Germanicus. Sejanus may have wanted to exterminate this challenge to his ambition, but the people's love for him and his role as priest made him nearly untouchable, and his young age made him less threatening. For a time, Sejanus had been the only game in town and had all the support. But now, support began to shift toward Gaius. More abandoned Sejanus when Tiberius began to prosecute some abuses of Sejanus's allies. Tiberius learned that Sejanus' support was weakening and saw that it was his chance to strike. In mid-October of 31 AD, he secretly contacted Navius Sertorius Macro, the head of the Vigiles, an early Roman combined police and fire department, and informed him of his plans. Macro was to be made the next Praetorian prefect. Next, Tiberius allowed a rumor to be spread that he would be passing on his tribunation powers to Sejanus, the final step before making him a co-princeps. When Sejanus heard this, he rushed to the Senate building to hear Tiberius's letter for himself. Macro, in the meantime, contacted the Praetorians, showed them his authority, and brought them away from guarding Sejanus and away from the Senate. Macro then had the Vigiles stand guard around the Senate. So, Sejanus reached the Senate building, all alone, and eagerly sat to hear the reading of Tiberius's latest letter. So what if Tiberius had been confusing before? The old man was finally handing over his power, Sejanus must have thought. The letter was a long one, and digressed into other topics for a long time. Then, at the end, it suddenly condemned Sejanus and ordered his arrest. Before Sejanus or his remaining supporters could act, he was seized and locked in prison. 
Cassius Dio elaborates on the scene of Sejanus's being dragged to prison. Thereupon one might have witnessed such a surpassing proof of human frailty as to prevent one's ever again being puffed up with conceit. For the man whom at dawn they had escorted to the Senate Hall as a superior being, they were now dragging to prison as if no better than the worst. On him whom they had previously thought worthy of many crowns, they now laid bonds. Him who they were wont to protect as a master, they now guarded like a runaway slave, uncovering his head when he would fain cover it. Him whom they had adorned with the purple-bordered toga, they struck in the face. And him whom they were wont to adore and worship with sacrifices as a god, they were now leading to execution. The populace assailed him, shouting many reproaches at him for the lives he had taken and many jeers for the hopes he had cherished. They hurled down, beat down, and dragged down all his images, as though they were thereby treating the man himself with contumely, and he thus became a spectator of what he was destined to suffer. That evening, the Senate met again and condemned Sejanus to death. He was taken from his cell and strangled. His body was thrown down the Gamonian stairs, a fate reserved for criminals. Upon hearing of Sejanus's downfall, the people of the city burst into a riot, tearing down the remaining statues of him and finding and beating or killing anyone they found linked with him. Within a few days, three of Sejanus's children had been killed as well. Sejanus's wife, Apicata, committed suicide, but not before writing a letter to Tiberius. In this letter, she revealed that it had been Sejanus and Lavilla who had killed Drusus, his son. Tiberius was enraged, and I'm sure some of that anger was toward himself for trusting the duplicitous traitor. Tiberius began his own purge of Sejanus' supporters. Lavilla either committed suicide or was starved by her mother. Any senator who had been a supporter of Sejanus or an associate of his was liable to be accused and tried. Some were tried and thrown into prison and their property seized from them. Many others who were accused took their own lives to allow their possessions be passed on to their children rather than being seized. Their suicides were fine with Tiberius. He eliminated supporters of Sejanus without being directly blamed for killing them. In fact, Tiberius may have begun the purges, but he left it to the Senate to prosecute the remaining supporters of Sejanus. Senator would accuse Senator and be condemned by other Senators. Ancient historians make Tiberius out to be a tyrannical manipulator of these purges, but modern historians point out that the purges of Sejanus' supporters weren't particularly widespread, and at least half of those accused of treason were eventually acquitted. Still, the political turmoil and backstabbing boiled on for several years. The ordeal with Sejanus had permanently scarred Tiberius, and if he was stressed and frustrated with ruling before, now paranoia was added to the mix. Agrippina and her son Drusus both survived on an island and in a Roman prison, respectively, and Tiberius could have brought them back or freed them. Even though he now knew Sejanus had often lied or twisted the information he received, Agrippina had still been a nuisance to him. Better to let her and her son stay in prison. Agrippina died in 33 AD, and her son Drusus died around the same time, after starving to death. Tiberius spent the next few years isolated on Capri, with his company consisting of Greeks distinguished in nothing but literature. If his brooding, paranoia, and stress interrupted his rest, it didn't improve his governing. The last few years of his life, he became neglectful. 
Syria and Spain were left without governors for several years. Although the cessation of expansionist policies had saved a lot of money, Rome's enemies became emboldened by the lack of activity of the armies. In the latter half of the 30s, the Parthians invaded Armenia, German tribes raided into Gaul, despite the improved fortifications along the Rhine, and in the north, along the Danube River, a new people called the Dacians raided south of the river into the region of Moesia, modern Serbia. We'll have plenty more to say about the Dacians later this century. Responses were fielded against all of these raids, and no lasting damage was done, but that they were able to occur speaks to the inertia of the army. Perhaps a larger failing than these raids was Tiberius's neglectfulness toward establishing an heir. Two candidates remained. The first was Gaius, or Caligula, and the second was Tiberius Gemellus, the son of Tiberius's own son, Drusus, who had been killed by Sejanus. The issue was that Gaius, who was the older of the two, had little experience in governing. Beginning in 31, he had lived on the island of Capri, alongside Tiberius. A half-hearted attempt to prepare him to rule was made in 33, when Gaius was made quaestor. As far as Gemellus went, he was only a teenager, and wouldn't be ready for a few more years for any government role. Amongst this backdrop, in 37 AD, Tiberius took a rare trip from Capri and went to an estate near Naples. Gaius was with him, as was Macro, the new Praetorian prefect. While walking about the estate, the elderly Tiberius fell hard and injured himself. He seems to have declined quickly because a rumor soon spread that he had stopped breathing. Gaius was being congratulated by the attendants when word arrived that Tiberius was not in fact dead yet. No problem. The accounts of Tacitus and Suetonius differ, but both claim that someone, either Macro or Gaius, came to Tiberius and fearing he would recover, smothered him with a pillow. Tiberius was 77 years old, and he had served as princeps for 23 years. It's difficult to assess the reign of Tiberius. He had the misfortune of following Augustus, who outclassed nearly every other Roman emperor that would follow. His contemporaries weren't fans, but I think they would have chosen him over his successor. Tiberius's reign had several positives. He had successfully kept the peace. It was an open question whether it had been Augustus's personality alone that had finally ended the civil strife of the prior century, and it was anyone's guess whether that would continue under Tiberius. But he had ensured a more durable peace. During his reign, there were no civil wars, and even the mutinies of the legions on the border had been quickly dealt with. And sure, there had been some small raids by enemies near the end of his reign, but no military disasters, even of the scale Augustus had suffered. Financially, Tiberius's reign was a blessing to the treasury. While the state hadn't been exactly lacking funds under the final decade of Augustus, under Tiberius, the treasury was flush with cash. He left the treasury with 20 times more funds than he had found it with. His successor would see how quickly he could burn through those billions of sesterces. On the pro side of the list, he should also get credit for his military successes before becoming emperor. He had been successful as a commander in Armenia, in Germany, and in the Alps. Tiberius certainly had his faults though. While he ended the campaigning of the army, which saved the government enormous amounts of money, this lack of campaigning led the army to grow inept and lethargic, which allowed the raids of the border in Tiberius's last years. 
To be fair, the performance of the army didn't greatly suffer, as we'll see in the next few decades. Conquest and military victory were still possible for Rome. His personality should fall on the con list. Tiberius's lack of charisma and moodiness, and his attempts to get the Senate to take responsibility it had no desire to take, alienated them. Like forcing a square peg through a round hole, his tendencies were inflexible and unadaptive and lost him the favor of the people and the Senate. His paranoia can be added to his faults as well, since it led to both the death of Germanicus, probably, and the purges of his enemies, real and perceived, during his reign. If Tiberius really did order the killing of Germanicus, it was a huge missed opportunity. His feelings towards Germanicus would be understandable, though. He was aware that he had been passed over by Augustus for the succession several times, even by his younger, more charismatic brother. So, when he saw his younger brother's own son acting without the approval of the princeps and gaining all of the admiration Tiberius had never had, he became jealous and paranoid Germanicus would usurp him. It's understandable, but it prevented Rome from having an emperor Germanicus, and instead gave them an emperor Gaius, who would turn out much worse. His paranoia even cost the life of Agrippina and her son Drusus, who both still survived in prison after Sejanus' downfall, but Tiberius did not choose to show them grace. And finally, on the con list, should be added his absenteeism. Even if you sympathize with his retreat from the bickering and jockeying for power that drove Tiberius to frustration, consider that each of the problems he faced was at least partially of his own making. The Senate's dysfunction could have been avoided if he shepherded them better and just accepted their self-serving praises of him. His annoyance with his extended family, led by Agrippina and her faction, could have been avoided if he had acted differently toward Germanicus. If he had done this, perhaps the people of Rome wouldn't have turned against him, giving him respect, if not quite, admiration. So, his absenteeism is perhaps the greatest fault, in my opinion. Instead of facing down his problems, he escaped from them and allowed Sejanus to take the brunt of the strain of ruling. To his credit, he still made decisions enacted in the interests of the Roman people, and he eventually brought Sejanus to justice. But he could have avoided the purges and ruled more directly from Rome than from his island retreat. However you balance the pros and cons of Tiberius' reign, his time as princeps saw the entrenchment and expansion of the system Augustus had established. Even though Tiberius had foregone or forbidden much of the admiration that had been given to Augustus, and he had initially leaned into making the Senate regain some of its old responsibilities, the Principate still experienced a creeping up of power. Without realizing it, the careful system of the Principate that Augustus had established had devolved into a monarchy or dictatorship. The word of Tiberius, and then Sejanus, and then Tiberius again, was accepted by the Senate as law. The fear of punishment for opposing Sejanus or Tiberius stopped the Senate from checking the growing power of the Principate. His successor, Gaius, would demonstrate the danger of this absolute power. So that ends our discussion of Tiberius's rule. Upon his death, the people of Rome celebrated, saying, To the Tiber with Tiberius, advocating his body be thrown into the river, as many of those killed in his purges had been. Finally free from Tiberius, the reign of Gaius got off to a celebrated start. Philo of Alexandria says Gaius was loved by all the world 
from the rising to the setting sun. In the first several months, Gaius confirmed their hopes in him. He met with the Senate and announced he would follow the example of Augustus and cooperate with the Senate in everything. He gave every citizen in Rome a sum of money, adding more on top of what Tiberius's will had instructed. To the army, he gave a bonus, and as a close ally of Macro, he gave the Praetorians a hefty donation. His generosity went beyond cash donations. He also hosted feasting and extravagant games. Whatever else could be said of Caligula, at least he wasn't boring. He won the favor of the elite by appointing more jurors to clear the backlog of cases. He recalled exiles, burned Tiberius's documents of treason, and returned his mother's ashes to Rome. Citing his youth, he even denied the honor of being named father of the country. Already, though, dark clouds were gathering over his reign, if the people cared to look up from their celebrating to see it. In voiding Tiberius's will, Gaius was able to give the citizens more money, but he also disinherited Gemellus. Tiberius had intended Gaius and Gemellus to share power, but Gaius was not keen to limit his power in any way. Instead, Gaius made Gemellus princeps of the youth and formally adopted him, but all of Tiberius's property, which was meant to be split, now went to Gaius alone. Still, all of the ancient writers mention a profound shift in Gaius's demeanor beginning in late 37 or early 38 AD. There are a few theories on what caused this switch, but to me, it seems likely that when he suffered a severe spell of illness in the autumn of 37, something broke in his brain, and his generosity turned to cruelty. Late in the year, after he had recovered, he heard a rumor that Gemellus had prayed for his death and was waiting for him to die. Gemellus was then accused by Gaius of taking an antidote for a poison, which, illegal or not, surely raises suspicions on Gaius. Gemellus was then cornered and forced to commit suicide, with the kind help of some soldiers in case he hesitated. Next, fearing Macro's power, he informed the Praetorian he would be given the governorship of Egypt, believable because the first Praetorian prefect under Tiberius had received the same promotion. When Macro went to board the boat for his new position, though, he was placed under arrest and stripped of his offices. He killed himself soon after. Gaius became increasingly autocratic, flaunting his power over the life or death of anyone. In a banquet, he reminded his guests that he could have them all killed should he wish to. Financially, things had been declining since he ascended to power. To put things succinctly, in his first year in office, he ran through the 2.7 billion sesterces Tiberius had left in the treasury. That money had been spent on buying the favor of everyone through gifts, feasts, and games. He also had spent it on lavish building projects, some useful, such as improvements to harbors in Sicily and Regium, which allowed easier transport of grain. Other building projects weren't so useful. He had two massive pleasure boats, one basically a floating palace, and the other a temple constructed on Lake Nemi. The boats were discovered at the bottom of the lake in the 1930s, but unfortunately were badly damaged during World War II. Ancient writers say that he basically bankrupted the state after his wild first years of spending. Other evidence points to some reserves being left over, namely that the quality of the coinage wasn't degraded, as one might expect in a currency shortage, 
and that his successor was able to spend a great deal of money on campaigns. So there must have been some reserves Caligula didn't burn through. However, there must also have been some sense of depleted funds, because Caligula imposed new taxes on food, on legal proceedings, and even on prostitution. He encouraged the citizens to name him in their wills. What he couldn't gain through persuasion, he took by force, executing citizens for small crimes in order to seize their property. And these executions were done in sadistic fashion, intentionally making the victims suffer. When his beloved sister Drusilla died in the summer of 38, another of his holds on reality left him. She and Gaius had been extremely close, and if our sources are to be believed, incestuously close. He had treated her more like a wife than a sister, and she was his closest confidant. He mourned her death and proclaimed her divinity. Whatever their relationship, she had been a check on his worst impulses. For all the excitement the Senate had for Caligula's returning things to the way Augustus had done them, the reality that they discovered was that they much preferred Tiberius's absenteeism to Caligula's active involvement with the body. He took pleasure in humiliating them and flaunting his authority over them. He got a kick out of making them wait long hours for him to appear. He made them wait on him and to run beside his chariot. He even made them kiss his feet. Clearly, he saw himself as an eastern divine king more than a first citizen. Purges often lead to counter-purges, and with Caligula in control, he was ready to punish those who had gone along with Tiberius's and Sejanus's purges of his family. Caligula evaluated Tiberius's treason trials and found many of the senators to be untrustworthy. He ordered his own investigations on them and put several of them to death. As you might expect, these trials and his humiliation of them led to a deterioration of relations between him and the Senate. Fear kept senators from speaking out. In private, though, that fear fueled conspiracies against him. Rumor reached Caligula that there were plots against his life, which made him only lean harder into these purges. Not all of these threats were centered in Rome, though. In 39, Gaius traveled to the Rhine frontier. He met with the governor of Germania Superior, just on the French side of the Rhine, in the highlands near the Alps. The governor's name was Gaetulicus. He was popular with the soldiers under his command. Maybe too popular. The issue Caligula had with him was that Gaetulicus had been a supporter of Sejanus and owed his position to his friendship with the dead Praetorian. Details are lacking on exactly what happened, which is common for the reign of Caligula. Caligula must have felt threatened by the governor because he executed him, surely not winning the respect of these soldiers. This nicely takes Caligula near the shores of the North Sea, where we will see him and his successor spending some time next decade. Our attention now has to shift far to the other side of the Roman Empire, back to the lands of Judea. Caligula's reign was not popular among the Jews. His conviction of his own divinity upset the Jews in the East, who refused to recognize him as divine. In the already tense ethnic and religious situation, this coercion to worship Caligula led to fighting between the Greek and Jewish populations of Alexandria. Worse, Caligula was apparently floating the idea of placing a statue of himself in the style of Zeus in the Temple of Jerusalem. When word slipped out about this, 
there were riots among the Jewish diaspora in Rome, Alexandria, Thessalonica, Antioch, and Galilee, and of course in Judea as well. Last time, I gave a brief description of the situation in Judea when discussing John the Baptist, but here I will give a fuller picture. So let's back up and cover the Roman history of Judea from the start, then talk about the Jewish people, and then finally talk about a particular Jew who lived during this decade and left quite an impact. Roman control over Judea began in 63 BC, when Pompey had conquered the area soon after incorporating Syria. Pompey had faced resistance and had sacked Jerusalem, the capital of Judea, and personally entered its holy temple. Unlike Syria, which was made into a full Roman province, Judea was left to be ruled by client kings. Although not technically a province, Judea was expected to pay tribute and give loyalty to Rome. Judea had been ruled by the Hasmonean dynasty for the past century, ever since gaining independence from the Seleucids. Pompey selected a ruler from the Hasmoneans named Hyrcanus, who he thought would be compliant and easy to control. Much of the former territory of Judea had been ceded to Syria. For the next 26 years, the Hasmoneans would rule Judea under the oversight of the governor of Syria. The real force behind the Hasmoneans, though, was a man named Antipater the Idumean, who successfully navigated the Jewish kingdom through the civil war of Caesar and Pompey and landed on the winning side. Antipater had been given an official status and had gained from Caesar the ability to administer directly. He began appointing his own sons to high positions rather than the Hasmoneans. In 44 BC, Caesar was assassinated, throwing the Roman world back into chaos. The next year, Antipater was assassinated by the king of the Nabataeans, an independent kingdom on Judea's east, the people who built Petra in Jordan. For the moment, Hyrcanus of the Hasmoneans seemed to be back in control, but Antipater's sons held on to power as governors of Jerusalem and of Galilee. Despite their feud with the sons of Antipater the Idumean, the house of the Hasmoneans was divided. In 40 BC, a rival claimant to the throne named Antigonus invited the Parthians of Persia to capture Jerusalem and place him on the throne. The Parthians, who were increasingly bold, agreed. They drove out Hyrcanus and placed Antigonus on the throne. Don't confuse Antipater the Idumean with Antigonus the Hasmonean like I almost did. Anyway, for the moment, Judea had slipped from Roman control and had now entered the orbit of Parthia. Herod, the son of Antipater, had fled when the Parthians invaded and gone to Rome. The Senate bestowed upon him the title King of the Jews and agreed to help him reclaim control of Judea. From 39 to 38 BC, the Romans pushed back the Parthian incursions in the east of the empire. In 38, Herod landed on the coast of Judea and got to work reconquering the area with the help of Roman soldiers. Antigonus was unsuccessful in stopping him, and in 37 BC, Herod reconquered Jerusalem. Herod now ruled over Judea. He would come to be known as Herod the Great, and his reign marked the beginning of the Herodian dynasty. He was called Herod the Great because of his long reign and his massive building projects he undertook. The people of Idumea, just to the south of Judea, where Herod's family was from, were recent converts to Judaism. Since they had not been Jews for long, 
There were doubts about the sincerity of his religion. To convince them, or out of genuine piety, Herod's greatest building project was his enhancement of the temple in Jerusalem. The work on the temple itself only took a year and a half, but constructing expansions to the courts and the outbuildings took decades longer. The finished project was a massive marvel rivaling other great religious architecture of the Roman world. Herod led a victorious war against the Nabataeans. He built a new cosmopolitan city on the Mediterranean coast called Caesarea, and he provided for the people in times of famine. On the other hand, he dealt harshly with any perceived challenges to his rule and implemented heavy taxes on the people. The Jews may have been ruled by another Jew, but he wasn't a Judean, and despite his work on the temple, many still felt they were being ruled by a foreign power. The exact date of Herod's death isn't completely clear, but it was sometime between 4 and 1 BC, probably closer to 4 BC. His will was honored by Augustus in dividing up Judea between his three sons and his sister. The two most significant portions were to Herod Archelaus, who received about half the kingdom, mainly the central regions, which included Jerusalem, and to Herod Antipas, who received a region north of his brother called Galilee, and an area to the east of his brother across the Jordan River called Perea. Herod Archelaus initially tried to gain the favor of the religious authorities, but soon after he entered Jerusalem, a revolt broke out. A Roman golden eagle had been placed atop the temple, which angered the Jews, who saw it as a symbol of idolatry, desecrating their temple. The eagle was cut down with an axe, and the people went into a riot. As I mentioned last time, the governor of Syria had to come in to violently restore order, i.e. massacre the rioters, and he crucified 2,000 Jerusalemites. The rule of Archelaus did not improve with time. His morality broke with Jewish law, and his cruelty won him no favors. When a representative of the Jews wrote to Augustus in 6 AD, the princeps decided Archelaus had run out of chances to turn things around. Augustus annexed Judea as a Roman province and exiled Archelaus to Gaul. In place of Archelaus, who had technically been an ethnarch, a prefect was installed. On the north and east peripheries of Judea, Archelaus's brother, Herod Antipas, still ruled as ethnarch over Galilee and Perea. From 6 AD to where we find ourselves in the 30s, the political situation in Judea was essentially the same. So that's the situation in Judea, but who exactly were the Jews? They were an odd people in the ancient world in that they were monotheists, worshipping only one supreme god rather than the pantheon of gods recognized by surrounding peoples. This belief in a single supreme deity, along with their distinctive laws and practices, distinguished the Jews from the Greeks, Syrians, Egyptians, Arabs, or Romans who encountered them. While I've been saying Judea, at this point, Judea was just one of several nearby areas in Palestine with a large Jewish population. There was also a significant Jewish diaspora in Syria, Anatolia, Greece, Rome, and Egypt. I don't have time to go into a fuller pre-Roman history of the Jews here, but if you want to hear more, I gave some background on their history in the second prologue episode. Just as Palestine was divided between Rome and client kingdoms, the Jews themselves were divided into several competing sects, each having its own interpretation of how best to follow their God in the present circumstances. 
The first group were the Sadducees, who made up many of the elite in Judea and had roles in maintaining the temple, administering the state, and leading the army. Their beliefs focused on only the writings of the Jewish holy book, the Torah, which would be equivalent to the first five books of a modern Christian Bible or a Hebrew Bible. In general, they were more in favor of assimilating to the Hellenism that surrounded Judea. The next group were the Pharisees. This sect or school of thought rejected the worldly influences of Hellenism. They emphasized stricter adherence to the law in their holy book than the Sadducees, who were more interested in rites at the temple. Their holy book, the Tanakh, was larger, including the written Torah, along with later writings, the prophets, the Psalms, and wisdom literature, but also an oral Torah, passed down by mouth. Third were the Essenes. These were the Jews who rejected both the teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and sought to distance themselves from the impurities of the world. They lived communal lives, had communal property, and lived lives of celibacy and poverty. If you were to imagine monks in a monastery, you wouldn't be too far off. Ritual purity was a major concern for them, and they engaged in daily washing or baptisms to purify themselves. The Dead Sea Scrolls were found in the deserts of Palestine in the 1940s, and it was probably a community of Essenes who had hidden them there. As evidenced in these ancient documents, they made use of the Tanakh, but also other writings, and their beliefs included more esoteric or secret knowledge of the divine, and they eagerly awaited a coming apocalypse. These three groups were in constant competition for followers, power, and influence. The internal tension among the Jews was matched by ethnic tensions. Ever since Alexander the Great had conquered the region three and a half centuries earlier, Judea had been connected to the wider Mediterranean world. In Greater Judea, which includes Idumea, Samaria, and Galilee, a significant number of people who were culturally Greek or Roman lived. Many of them would have been descended from local people or the Phoenicians to the north. The difference in religion led to tensions between them and the Jews, who considered even the Samaritans, who also worshipped a single supreme god and had the same or nearly the same Torah, as unclean. As we saw with the command to worship Caligula, the Hellenized people would have had no qualms with that, whereas this would have been deeply wrong for any Jew. The Jews must have felt like they were treated as second-class subjects compared to the Hellenized people or Romans who lived among them. I provide all of this context to demonstrate the chaotic background of the region. Judea had gone from independent kingdom to Roman client state ruled by the Hasmoneans, to Parthian client state ruled by another Hasmonean, to a Roman client state ruled by the Herodians, to a Roman province, all in the prior 100 years. The Jewish people were split between Sadducees, Pharisees, Essenes, and undoubtedly a majority who fell somewhere in between. In this environment, there was an eagerness for what the Jews called a Messiah, or anointed one, someone who would free them from foreign rule, and who had been prophesied in the Jewish scriptures. There was a fever of messianic claims during the first century AD. Even the revolt in Jerusalem in 4 BC was seen as a messianic revolt, with its leader claiming divine blessing to throw off the Romans. In that same year, a shepherd named Athrongis crowned himself king and began to fight the Romans, but he and his followers were defeated by Herod Archelaus. Many others claimed to be the Messiah. 
In 6 AD, Judas of Galilee led a resistance to a Roman census and founded a fourth sect, according to Josephus, called the Zealots. These Zealots were Jews committed to being ruled by no one but God alone, and they were committed to using violent means to achieve this. The list of Jewish claimants to being the Messiah could go on. Theudas, Simon of Perea, someone Josephus just calls an imposter, and a Jewish Egyptian are all mentioned by Josephus. There's one other claimant to being the Messiah from the first century, whose claims have resonated the loudest through the centuries, and who has gathered billions of followers since this decade. This Jewish claimant to being the Messiah was Yeshua of Nazareth. In Greek, he is called Iesus, and in English, Jesus. The first question to ask here is whether this Jesus, the central figure of the Christian religion, actually existed. For a long time, the answer would have been a definitive yes. But during the 19th century, ever since secular textual criticism began to analyze the Christian New Testament, there have been some claiming that Jesus was not a historical person, but a mythical figure drawing inspiration from sun or harvest gods. They pointed to the limited number of primary sources that mentioned Jesus and features of his life that are analogous to these myths. Today, though, secular biblical scholars nearly unanimously believe that Jesus was a real person who lived in first century Roman Palestine. One of the most prominent secular biblical scholars of today is Dr. Bart Ehrman of the University of North Carolina, who wrote an entire book called Did Jesus Exist?, in which he argues for a historical Jesus and against the mythicists. The point is made that there is actually quite a bit of independent historical evidence for Jesus. Let's run through the list. First, the Christian Gospels. If you're unfamiliar with the Christian New Testament, the Gospels make up the first four books and are each a biography of sorts of Jesus' life and ministry. The first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the Synoptic Gospels, as they share many similarities, while the fourth Gospel, John, is much different from the others. A full discussion of the Christian and secular opinions on the New Testament, their authors, their composition, and their timelines would need to be its own podcast, and I'll try to stay out of the thorniest areas. To put it succinctly, the earliest of the four Gospels appears to be Mark, written sometime between 45 and 75 AD, and the latest appears to be John, written sometime between 85 and 110 AD. As I mentioned, each gospel has its own perspective on Jesus, but the following features are shared among them all. They all agree that he was from Nazareth, a small town in Galilee. His mother was Mary. He gathered 12 disciples, mostly from the nearby area. Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. Jesus preached about the coming of a new kingdom. He performed miracles and healed. Large crowds began to follow him. The chief priests and the Pharisees became offended by what he was saying and doing. Jesus had a last supper with his disciples. He was soon after betrayed by one of these disciples. He was tried before the Jewish religious leaders and the Roman prefect, Pontius Pilate. He was crucified outside the city and on the third day, it was discovered that his tomb was empty, and he had risen from the dead. That's the testimony about Jesus, in a 30-second summary, given by the Gospels. 
Staying with the Christians for a moment, Paul the Evangelist is considered to be an independent testimony to Jesus, according to Ehrman and other biblical scholars. In his letters to the church outside of Judea, his focus is on theology and proper conduct of the church, but he does make clear references to biographical details of Jesus' life. At a bare minimum, it can definitively be said Paul considered Jesus to have been a real person, a Jew, who preached in Palestine, he had a last supper with his disciples, was betrayed, was tried by Pontius Pilate, was crucified, and was raised from the dead on the third day. Paul also claims to have met with Peter, a prominent disciple of Jesus, and James, the brother of Jesus. Although Paul's letters come after the Gospels when flipping through the New Testament, his letters were written between 50 and 65 AD, and thus provide our earliest references to Jesus. Like much of our knowledge about Judea, Josephus is our main non-Christian guide. There are two mentions of Jesus in his works. The fullest and most controversial is this one. About this time, there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. For he was one who performed surprising deeds and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Christ, and when upon the accusation of the principal men among us, Pilate had condemned him to the cross, those who had first come to love him did not cease. He appeared to them, spending a third day restored to life. The prophets of God had foretold these things, and a thousand other marvels about him, and the tribe of the Christians, so called after him, has still to this day not disappeared." On its face, that appears to line up to an extraordinary degree with the Christian writings about Jesus. Most historians cast doubt on the passage, claiming it had been edited by Christians in later centuries. But a majority also believes it contains an authentic core. A reconstruction of the core of the passage may read, Now, there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, for he was a doer of startling deeds, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure and he gained a following both among many Jews and many of Greek origin. And when Pilate, at suggestion of the principal men amongst us, condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, and the tribe of Christians, so named from him, has still to this day not disappeared. The passage still contains a good deal of detail about Jesus, without putting admiration that would have been unusual for a non-Christian, Romanized Jew like Josephus. The other passage regarding Jesus and Josephus is when he mentions the stoning of James, the brother of Jesus. James is regarded in Christian tradition as a brother of Jesus and the head of the early church in Jerusalem. This passage is nearly universally regarded as authentic. So there we have a testimony from Josephus, around 95 AD. Tacitus, a Roman historian writing around 116, also makes reference to Jesus. In discussing the great fire of Rome in 64 AD and the persecution of the Christians by Nero which followed, he says the Christians are called that because they were followers of Christus, who suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. The passage is generally considered to be authentic as well, but it holds less value than prior mentions because it is subject to hearsay. Tacitus doesn't reveal his sources for this information, and could easily have gotten it from a contemporary Christian in his own time, or even a Christian from the time he references. 
The historian Suetonius, writing around 122, also mentions the Christians in Rome in connection with the Great Fire of 64, although he doesn't refer to Jesus or events of his life specifically. More interesting and more controversial is a reference made by Suetonius earlier, during the reign of Claudius in 49 AD. He writes, Since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, he expelled them from Rome. Here, Suetonius says, Crestus with an E, not Christus with an I. This is considered to give authenticity to the reference. The Christians wouldn't have misspelled Christ or Christus, nor would they have implied that Crestus was in Rome, as Suetonius seems to be thinking. We're now moving into less clear or less helpful territory. Around 112, Pliny the Younger, the governor of the province of Bithynia and Pontus, in what's today the north of Turkey, wrote a letter to the Emperor Trajan, asking for advice for dealing with the growing community of Christians there. There had been anonymous accusations made against the Christians, and Pliny was beginning to bring them under trial. The letter applies more to the early church than it does to the life of Jesus himself, but it does say the Christians sing hymns to Christ as if to a god, and they practice a shared meal of ordinary food. Finally, we have a case that may be interesting, but is of little definitive help. There was an early historian named Thalos who wrote in Greek, but may have been from Samaria. He wrote a history of the world that began with the Trojan War. It's thought that this work was written in the 50s AD. The problem is that Thalos's history is lost. Fortunately, he was quoted by several other ancient writers, including one named Sextus Julius Africanus, who wrote in the early 3rd century. Unfortunately, this work is also lost. What we do have is a writing from the 9th, yes, 9th century, who quotes Africanus, quoting Thalos. In this double quotation, Thalos records that during the crucifixion of Jesus, darkness fell over the earth, and Thalos blames this on a solar eclipse. Then, Africanus is recorded as disagreeing, saying a solar eclipse couldn't make sense, since a solar eclipse could only occur during a new moon, and at the time Jesus died, immediately before the Passover, the moon would have been full. Like I said, a quotation of a quotation is a stretch especially when we have to reach forward 800 years to hear it. If the quotation of Thalos is authentic, and if he did write around 52 AD, this would be a testimony around the crucifixion of Jesus. Beyond these sources I've mentioned are several others that are either of less information, are more dubious, or are from a later date. What I've presented here is timely, provides at least some useful information, and is relatively well agreed to being authentic. Others could have been discussed, such as a supposed exchange of letters between the ruler of Edessa and Jesus himself, and then an exchange between this ruler and Emperor Tiberius, or a meeting of the Senate following a report by Pontius Pilate attesting to the miracles of Jesus, in which the Senate votes to instead condemn Christianity. Interesting, but usually not agreed to be authentic. Anyway, hopefully you're still following along. I know that was a lot, but I thought it would be good to look at the early source material on Jesus' life. What the majority of these accounts have in common is that Jesus was a Jew living in Palestine in the early first century. He taught and gathered a large following, but was crucified under the reign of Pontius Pilate. 
Soon after, he had followers who worshipped him. Perhaps another testimony, though this one is non-literary and provides more nebulous information, would be the growth and spread of the early Christians. Starting in Judea, within two decades, there were Christians, though few in number, spread across the Mediterranean, at least as far as Rome. Whatever happened after Jesus' death, his disciples certainly seemed to have become passionate in preaching that Jesus had risen from the dead and was the fulfillment of the hopes of the Jews. His followers will increasingly grow in numbers and spread across the Mediterranean and the Near East. They will mostly fly under the radar for the next century of our series, but we will see them popping up in our narrative more and more. As far as our decade is concerned, Jesus was crucified between 30 and 33 AD. In this decade, his following was small but growing. At first, his followers went by the name The Way. Almost all of his followers in the first few years were Jews, from Judea, but also those from the Diaspora, who heard about him while on pilgrimage to Jerusalem. At first, this new movement within Judaism could have been seen as a fourth sect outside of the Pharisees, Sadducees, or Essenes. In Antioch, it is said, the followers of Jesus were first called Christians, as Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. Within a few years, Gentiles, what the Jews called non-Jews, began to follow him as well. Within a few years of Jesus' crucifixion, a man named Paul, who was a Roman Jewish citizen, originally from Tarsus in Cilicia, in the southeast corner of Anatolia, came to follow Jesus. He would go on to write many of the letters found in the New Testament and help spread the following of Jesus around the Roman Mediterranean. The Jews had been hoping for a Messiah who could free them from foreign rule. What Jesus and his followers were preaching was something far different. Within three centuries after the crucifixion of Jesus, the emperor of the Romans would become a follower of him as well. As an epilogue, here's what happened to Pontius Pilate after his ordering of Jesus' crucifixion. Around 35 AD, Pilate went to Mount Gerizim, the holy mountain of the Samaritan people, and slaughtered a group of armed Samaritans, who may have been led by their own Messiah-like figure. Pilate was looking for artifacts said to be buried there by Moses. The Samaritans complained to the governor of Syria, claiming that they had been unarmed when Pilate attacked them. Pilate was removed from office and sent to Rome to be tried by Tiberius. Fortunately for him, by the time he reached Rome, Tiberius was dead. What happened next is unclear. Apocryphal Christian accounts say that he would go on to become a follower of Jesus. Other late accounts claim he committed suicide while awaiting his judgment. This won't be our last visit to Palestine this century. The chaos of the region will only increase in the coming decades, and we will see that messianic desire for freedom bring about dark days in Judea. Next time, though, we will see Caligula's cruelty come round to bite him, and his bookish and awkward uncle will become emperor and extend Roman power to the end of the earth, to the misty and mythical island of Britannia. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope you'll subscribe and leave a rating and a review. 
You can follow the show on Twitter at 202 Decades or on the 202 Decades of Western History Facebook page. See you next time. Bye.